0: hi i'm joe cadwell the writer
1: producer and host of grit nation but in this special episode of the building trades podcast i'll actually be the guest on someone else's show join me today as i talk with nate wadsworth from the essential craftsman podcast if you haven't heard of the essential craftsman you really should check them out I'm a big fan of their YouTube channel, which is hosted by Nate's dad, Scott. And in fact, I've been recommending his video series to my carpenter apprentices for years. They're informative, educational, and honestly, just a lot of fun to watch. Nate does a great job with his podcast, and I was super excited for a chance to be on the show. We open our conversation with me talking about my experience as a military and professional hard hat construction diver, later we get into the importance of organized labor unions, opportunities in union apprenticeships, careers in the building trades, and what it means to be a leader in today's fast-paced and highly competitive commercial construction industry. I've added hyperlinks for the essential craftsman in the show notes and on the Grit Nation podcast website, which you can find at www.gritnationpodcast.com.
0: And now on to the show. Hey guys, our guest today is Joe Cadwell. Joe's a part of the Pacific Northwest Carpenters Institute, which is the local branch of the UBC, the United Brotherhood of Carpenters. This is the big union that carpenters and a lot of construction guys are involved with. So we talk about unions. We also talk about a, a big portion of Joe's career, which was, in, which was underwater, uh, not just welding, but also welding, but I should say commercial diving. This means installations and inspections and rigging and all kinds of things that happen under the water with these really specialized and highly trained divers who are making our world function. And, and Joe's uh, had a lot of expertise and experience and a, really a whole career doing that. So I really enjoyed this. Joe has a podcast of his own, Grit Nation, which we will link to, which is a good place to find out more if you like uh, what you hear from him. Without any further ado, Joe Cadwell. Thank you for coming and taking time out of your schedule. And the first, I think, question I have for you is I'd love to hear more about the Northwest Institute of Carpentry or Carpenters Institute and kind of what you do there and then Later, let's talk about the trades, getting into it, apprenticeship programs, all those types of things. But first of all, tell us about the uh, the Carpentry Institute there.
1: Yeah, well, uh, thank you so much, Nate, for having me on your show. Uh, again, my name is Joe Cadwell, and I do work at the Pacific Northwest Carpenters Institute, which is based in Portland. We are a regional training center for the uh, Northwest Carpenters Union, which is one of the 23 regional uh, councils for the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners of America. And if, for a lot of listeners who maybe don't know what the UBC is, it's a, an organized labor union that's been around for 141 years. It's international, which means all of the U.S. and Canada uh, is represented. And we have a half a million members. And the UBC has been in the business for, again, 141 years, bettering its members' lives. Wow.
0: Oh, wow. I did not realize it was, it was uh, a part of a huge chapter. So our Is that like the, are there other carpenter unions or trade unions around carpentry besides that, or is that basically it for carpentry in North America? that's a great
1: question, Nate, and, and we are it. When you think of a carpenter's union, the UBC is the carpenter's union, just like you have the IBEW for the electrical workers or the plumbers union or the teamsters for the truckers uh-huh. or the iron workers union. We are the carpenters, the UBC. And our main office or our headquarters, I should say, is based in Washington, D.C., and we have uh, our main training center is in Las Vegas. And we oh. offer classes in Las Vegas that uh, build leadership development, train the trainers. It's uh, sort of the showpiece or the flagship of all of our training centers collectively uh, there in at, uh, in Las Vegas. Oh, that's cool.
0: Um, carpentry is such a broad term. And it, it, you obviously think about like, I think about either framing a house or even like a carpenter of old times like you know making furniture and shaving wood with like a, a hand plane but I know on your website and in, in general carpentry actually at least in terms of the union encompasses a lot of other aspects of construction besides framing so what uh, what else is a part of the carpenters union and the trade as far as you guys are concerned
1: Yeah absolutely you know when you think about the carpenters union we don't really do the the home uh building type of carpentry. We do have a, a very small faction that does do that, but we're really commercial construction. And uh, the the craft itself, or the UBC, represents uh, a number of different crafts, from a general carpenter to someone who does uh, interior and exterior uh, finishes. They're, they're known as EIS specialists. We work with uh, floor layers. We work with millwrights. We work with scaffold directors. We have uh, pile drivers, which work putting in the foundations uh, inshore on, on skyscrapers or, or on the water where they do a lot of um, work on the water. And then my particular craft while I have been in the UBC for the last 24 years has been commercial diving. And I worked as a commercial diver for 30 years of which 22 were with the UBC. And it's only been the last few years that I've
0: switched over to education here in the Northwest. Wow. So how, how'd you get involved with diving as a profession? That's not, that's not every... Uh... Not every tradesman, is, you know, has that as their uh, as their career.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a that's a great question. I actually started diving when I was twelve years old. I was living in Northern California, and uh, my next door neighbors uh, got scuba certified. They had a son who was two years older than I was, and I just wanted to to tag along with that family. And uh, when I started doing that, I, I started with just free diving uh, snorkeling, so to speak, uh-huh. mass fins and snorkel. They would be doing scuba in uh, Lake Folsom there in Sacramento. And I thought it was just magical. And so I really pestered my folks to, uh, to get myself a, a scuba certification for Christmas. And uh, I was 12 years old and they thought, well, you know, this is just going to be a passing phase fad for a kid. And it, it, it wasn't, I was hooked from the very get go. As soon as I strapped on a tank and put in a regulator and started breathing underwater, I knew that this was going to, uh, to be something I wanted to pursue in earnest. And so I did. And, and I actually uh, really focused on getting as much time in the water as I could, but still not not being able to do much. But I knew that it was going to be a career. And if I wanted to make diving a career, I would have to join the military. And I think we're going to get into career options a little bit yeah. later in our conversation. But I, I didn't have the grades to consider going to college. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a, a Navy diver. And so three days after exiting high school, I was on a delayed entry program and I was on my way to boot camp, which wow. then transitioned to an A school where I learned the skill of welding. And then I took that uh, skill set and I went to U.S. Navy deep sea diving school, second class diver school in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And uh, pretty, pretty tough school to, to make it through. But I, uh, I made it and I was out in the fleet uh, afterwards as a salvage diver on a ship called the USS Recovery based out of Little Creek, Virginia, the amphib base in, uh, on the East Coast.
0: Wow. So um, I'm sure the Navy and all the military is using diving for all types of specific applications. Um, Talk about what some of those are and then what salvage entails, what what you were doing, you know, at that early part of your career.
1: Yeah, you bet. So the Navy, you know, when when you think about diving in the Navy, I think most people instinctively go to the SEALs, the special ops uh, folks. And the SEALs, sea, air and land. Uh, special Forces use diving as a vehicle to get to where we're going. And, and the ship that I was on for a period of time, we served as a platform for the SEALs to use their um, underwater uh, vehicles in, in which to perform their operations. Uh, but the SEALs really, again, it's just part of their shtick the the navy divers are the ones that actually do the repairs on the ships they can uh, also be involved in the salvage work oh and then there's one other component nate it's a uh, eod explosive ordnance disposal also uses diving as a vehicle to get mm. to do their job but i specialized in uh, hard hat diving we call it the second class dive school after second class if you were in the in the fleet long enough you would stay uh or in the program long enough you would then uh go to first class dive school where you would learn mix, mixed gas uh, theory. And then after mixed gas, there was always the option to go into sat diving at that period of time. But I, I, I actually did four years in the military during that period of time. I was a salvage diver. And the, my claim to fame, the one thing that I, I, I did not have the opportunity to do but was so close to happening was when the Challenger blew up back in the, um, early eighties, the space shuttle, uh, the challenger and my sister ship and and my ship were down for repairs. And it was a race to see who was going to get their, their, um, vessel operational and head down to Florida from, from Virginia and they beat us to it. And so, uh, I missed that out of that one, but, uh, honestly, I've, I've done some really amazing things in the water with, with construction and, uh, lots of adventures to talk about if you're interested. Yeah. When I I went after the Navy.
0: When I think about like repairing a ship underwater, I instantly think, okay, there's a hole and the ship is sinking and got to like patch that hole, but I'm sure there's a lot of other kind of routine maintenance and these ships are huge. What what all like what what is some of that? Like what 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 does that mean maintaining ships like Underwater, you're like like finding like grease fittings and like greasing things. Or yeah, what, there's what a, all I mean there's like?
1: there's that aspect. There's hull cleaning is a big part of it, making sure that you know the barnacles are are not slowing down the speed of the vessel. But okay. uh, when you really think about ships uh, repair, things that can't be done in a dry dock or it's not feasible or it's a it's something that uh, is is better suited to be done uh, in the water could be pulling off a prop. You know, and and doing prop replacements, massive props on the back of uh, Navy vessels can be pulled off in water and replaced in water. Uh, There's there's packings that need to be uh, repacked. There's uh, sea chests that need to be cleaned so they have good inflow of of water for cooling systems, Uh, repairs to rudders. But, um, you know, ideally you always want to try to get a vessel into dry dock and you literally lift a ship up out of the water. And that's something else that divers do. They'll set the blocks so that, uh, in a dry dock. So when the ship comes into line up, it's not going to crush something that is on the bottom of the ship and make sure wow. that the ship doesn't tip over in the
0: dry dock. So what, yeah, diving what is, is a, to, what does hard hat refer to you, You said a hard hat, um, diver. What is that
1: Well, great. Mean? Yeah. Again, most people think of, uh, you know, diving, they think of scuba. And that's yeah. self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. It's a tank and it's a regulator. We actually use the uh, the helmets that uh, most people are, are probably familiar with, the old brass helmets. The giant Mark V dive helmet is, yeah. uh, is a thing of the past. And now they've, uh, you know, for the last, geez, 40 years or so, Kirby Morgan, Diving helmets are the are the name in the industry, and it's just a, a way to protect the diver's head. It, uh, it has a small internal space. You uh, actually have an oral nasal cup that your mouth and nose fit into that uh, cut down on the um, carbon dioxide uh, oh. amount inside the helmet. It provides for communication. It provides... Uh, a platform to put lights and cameras on. And it's a, it's part of a package. I mean, we call that the helmet is obviously what's on your head. You still wear a bottle on your back, a bailout mm-hmm. bottle in case for some reason, the surface supplied air that you is being provided to you as the diver while, while you're doing your job should, should be compromised. You can go on to bailout uh-huh. uh, and, and try to get yourself off bottom or buy a little time until they figure out where, where the problem went wrong. Uh, You wear a harness that uh, attaches an umbilical, a diver's umbilical is uh, your lifeline, so to speak. You have your air supply there. You have the strength member in case you really need to come up hard and fast on someone in the water. You've got a strength member that's going to be able to to, support that. You have a communications cable. You have something called a pneumophathometer, and it's an open-ended tube that basically the topside supervisor will be able to accurately monitor your depth in the water. Uh, you have your lights and camera um, cable. And then if you're lucky enough and you work for a company that's progressive enough, they'll actually provide the diver with hot water. And uh, it's like uh, uh, hot water is cooked in a boiler on the surface and it's sent down the hose to the diver and it plugs into an oversized wetsuit with perforated tubing that run up the head, uh, the, the back legs and arms. And you're almost in a personal jacuzzi. And it's, it's amazing because, you know, you we work in water as cold as freezing or I've actually been in water below freezing, but because it was moving, it it hadn't yet solidified. And when you're in that kind of water, you know, it it doesn't matter how tough you are after a certain period of time, your mind begins to wander and go off a task, but having that hot water being bathed in, in, in nice, you know, um, warm water will definitely keep you focused.
0: Oh, I can't imagine the, I say luxury, but probably after you experience it, it doesn't feel like a luxury. it feels like a safety item. I can't it's, imagine it, what an improvement that would be to those those guys
1: massive, 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 and you know a lot of times uh we're in the water from anywhere from from uh four to six hours. And if you're in the water for four to six hours, you really do begin to appreciate that. You know, summer months there's not in in the rivers and shallow waters not really a need for it. But uh, when when the water gets below fifty degrees and it, it sort of overcomes the, uh, the the abilities of a dry suit to keep you warm and comfortable and focused and on track of what your what the work at hand is, you definitely appreciate that hot water.
0: Oh, uh, that's amazing! So, under, kind of circling back to the the. Um, I'm, is it the UBC, the union acronym there? Um, the
1: <laughs> yeah, the United Brotherhood of Carpenters yeah, yeah, and Joiners UBC. of
0: America. So anyway, is underwater welding underneath their umbrella of it, trades? Just it sure is. Yeah. Plot, like oil tankers who are, or I'm sorry, oil rigs. Those underwater welders are are likely a part of the of this union also
1: actually they are not and uh you know we'll talk uh, hopefully we'll talk a little bit about union structure and market shares and things like that but the petroleum yeah. industry down in the Gulf of Mexico is historically a non-union uh, oh. arena and so we don't have a lot of union presence i think it was post Katrina hurricane Katrina that came through some years ago uh there was a huge vacuum in the Gulf of Mexico and they brought in a lot of our uh union contractors to get get the work done, but historically the petroleum industry, one of the, you know, arguably one of the richest, uh, industries in the world is notorious for not paying their divers very well. And huh. so we, oh, uh, because of, because of the lack of a union presence. So hmm. here in the Pacific Northwest, for example, we're, we're union strong in the diving world. And most of the contractors, uh, of size and, and ability here in the Northwest are union contractors. And okay. through the, those, um, uh negotiated wages divers make a a really solid living you know and uh again going back to what you were talking about with uh uh underwater welding yes it is part of the ubc structure but again with half a million members across the u.s and canada i think if i remember clearly we're somewhere just around 1200 unionized divers with strongholds here in the northwest in the midwest like in um chicago area and definitely over on the east coast of uh you know, uh, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and those areas, but you start drifting south and we uh, south down into Florida and the Gulf and we lose market share and the the wages plummet because of that.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So in the Northwest, for example, again, when I think of underwater, not just welding, but let's just say, um, work, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think of oil and I think of military as like the two, I don't know, areas where there's probably, I can imagine like a lot of work, need to be done. What other types of places and people are hiring underwater welders for, you know, construction?
1: Okay. uh, Great question. And again, you know, the, uh, the romantic notion, uh, Nate of a, of a diver welding underwater is really just that it's a romantic notion. We don't really do that much welding. Uh, most of the things that are put into the water that have been welded or welded topside. they're inspected, they're powder coated Uh or painted, they're sent down and then they're flanged and bolted up flanged up and and put together by divers underwater we really do try to get away from uh, underwater welding because it really is time consuming and it is a a very very specialized i i am i can stick metal together underwater don't get me wrong but it's truly an art form welding and in and of itself is an art form on the surface when you put some under uh, underwater it it's just a long tedious process and not everyone is a picasso you know, yeah. not everyone has that same ability. And so we'd much, contractors and customers would much rather have it welded topside, inspected, painted, yeah. put in the water, bolted together. So, to answer your question, what else does a diver do if they're not down there for hours on end burning welding rods? We do uh, a lot of um, work for the Army Corps of Engineers here in the Pacific Northwest. The, uh, the Columbia River and the Snake River have a tremendous amount of um, uh, Army Corps dams, starting with Bonneville, which is the first dam upstream from, from uh, Astoria. And then you have the Dalles Dam, John Day Dam, McNary Dam, all the way up up the uh, Columbia River. All of those dams over the last 20 years have gone through a lot of um, uh, retrofits to try to make uh, suitable passage for the small smolten fry, after the salmon go up river and spawn, uh, th- those small smolten fry, when they start exiting. Or leaving their um, spawning ground, so to speak, heading out to the ocean to mature, have to make it past these dams. And there's, they only have a couple options. You know, they either go through the turbines or they go through the spillways. And both of them are just horrible. A a (laughs) turbine is basically a giant blender, and a spillway just disoriented disorients those small smolten fry to such a level that they're easy pickings on the downstream side for birds of prey and things like that. So over the years, I've made a, a, a fairly good living uh, on those dams, putting in safe passage that uh, environmentalists would first identify as, as viable means of, of uh, rerouting the fish around there. We'd put wow. in prototypes, we'd put in monitoring gear, and then uh, the studies would go on. We'd pull all that stuff out. They may revise what they, we put in the water one season modify it a little bit, put it in the next season. And then eventually we'd put in the full size structure. And again, it's all about allowing safe passage for those smaller fish to make it downstream. Heading upstream, huh. the adult salmon fish ladders work really well. Yeah, uh, there was a period of time a few years back where we were actually helping the lamprey eels to be able to make safe passage upstream because a lamprey eel doesn't use the same sort of, um, Uh, flying out of the water technique that salmon do to get over these fish ladders. Lampreys have a different... And and so they actually made almost like a a sluice gate for them to to climb up. Yeah. Wow. So it's interesting work. We do a lot of salvage work. There's a lot of... um, work on on bridges as well uh, salvage work i 'll back up a little bit. We do a lot of salvage work, usually the bigger salvage work, some of the bigger uh, ships that have had some difficulty on the uh, the columbia river uh, there 's the emergency call outs as well for the different uh, tug lines here in the northwest. And uh, we do a lot of just intake work. So if uh, any, any industry, be it a farm out in Hermiston or be it uh, uh, an aluminum plant here in, in Portland, they're drawing water in from the river. You can't just have a big open pipe sucking in whatever on the river you have to have some sort of filtration system and those are what we call intakes and then a lot of times after the uh the the plant or factory or whatever has has uh utilized that water and cleaned it up and and it's getting ready to go back into the river they actually have out uh, outflows and there, huh. those always need repair as well. Installing duck bills, um, cleaning out the pipes, things like that. So, yeah, the diving community is is really uh, a tight community here in the Pacific Northwest. I think there's about 140 to 160 uh, folks like myself before I retired from the from the trade who actually make a, a living full time huh. as commercial divers.
0: Wow, that is so interesting. It's one of these things that is existing right alongside me. I'm in the Pacific Northwest, but everywhere around the world, these, these, this expertise and these careers and this critical, almost like infrastructure work that's happening that most people just really don't think about much.
1: Right. And with all. diving, we're out of, out of sight, out of mind
0: you know exactly. you, yeah, you you dive, them.
1: <laughs> dive crews were usually remote and yeah. uh and then the divers themselves are underwater so you only see them when they they come up and switch out and, and the next person gets in
0: anytime Go i on. jump in the water and i see like a structure like maybe it's like a dock pier or even the bottom of a boat i just get this creepy feeling and i'm what does that does that ever like pass and you ever kind of feel less creepy looking at structures underwater or is that just part of the job
1: it, i think you know at a certain point it's it's part of the job uh, i was always fascinated by it i remember one of my the very first dive out of my uh recreational dive class that i took back in the uh, the late 70s i was in the sacramento river and uh w- my my buddy and i we kind of messed up on our planning a little bit and we were diving solo because we only had one backpack to hold our Our tank on. And here I am, 12 years old. If if my dad's listening now, he's 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 shaking his head. But uh 12 years old, my buddy went down first, uh dropped about 40 feet into the Sacramento River in a little eddy there. And he goes, Man, it's gonna be creepy when you get down there. And I said, Why is that? He goes, All the salmon had had spawned and died, and it's just like a mass graveyard down there. And I was like, Oh. So again, you know, my very first dive out of class, the number one thing they say is always dive with a buddy. Well, what am I doing? Not diving with a buddy. I get this gear on, I drop down nice and slow through the water column and it, uh, it goes, um, dark pretty quick and it's kind of murky until I get about five feet off bottom. And the first thing I see when I get close to bottom and the the visibility turns crystal clear is just, just hundreds and hundreds of, of dead salmon there and just different, uh, um, Arrays of decay, and uh, yeah, it was interesting. So that started me off. Uh, since then, yeah. you know, I've seen some some amazing things, some some big animal encounters. After I exited the military, I ended up teaching scuba diving for eight years in the South Pacific and the Caribbean. I was really, really fortunate to be able to work in countries like Australia and Thailand and Mexico and. Uh, just in Fiji, and just really enjoyed those um, interactions with with the 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 marine life with the big animals and with the customers as well. I would literally teach people to to feel comfortable in a completely foreign and exotic world, and wow. uh, I enjoyed the heck out of that, but when I turned twenty nine I realized when I was in the country of Sweden where I'd followed one of my students to her homeland that things were going to need to change. And that's why I had to shift gear from, from teaching scuba diving and get back into my roots. And that again, goes back to the hard hat diving that I had uh, knowledge that I I'd gained in
0: the military. So that that's when it became a little more uh, commercial oriented in terms of uh, the building and construction underwater work, as opposed to the more recreational site, even though there's a, you know, money to be made and certainly a lot of people earning a, Living, um, focusing on that aspect of diving, but you you kind of recentered to the commercial aspect.
1: Yeah, I, d- I definitely had to. I mean, after eight years of teaching diving in all these remote locales, I really had a a tan that was fading fast, and a, okay. and a uh, a bank account that was uh, fading yeah. even faster. So I was yeah. happy to to have the had had the opportunity in the military to to get a skill set that right. I could. Uh, Fall back on, and it turned out to be uh, the, the best decision I could have made. After having left Sweden uh, as a commercial diver there for a few years, working inland primarily, I ended up here in the Northwest and stumbled into my my uh, union um, job. And I and and I did not know much about unions. I think we talked about this yeah. earlier. And I just like you, yeah, I didn't really know much about unions. I didn't know what they provided and the structure and and the opportunity that uh, was in front of me. And I'm so glad that I. I did uh, recognize it and uh, grab hold of that opportunity when it presented itself.
0: So talk, let's talk about unions a little bit and and maybe your experience is a perfect place to start because I've always had this conception that getting, let's say, a union job or, I don't know, just getting involved is challenging. You know, I, I've always thought of like the union guys is like the highest level expert. They get paid the most. They are really well trained. And I just always assume that those jobs are tough to get. But it, how does someone go about uh, getting trained to work for a union? You said you kind of stumbled yeah. into it, which I'm sure there's a story there. But how, if someone's listening to this and they also don't know a lot about unions, but they, you know, they're their are tracking with us. Um, how do you explain right. this to them?
1: Yeah, well, I, I you know, they are I won't say they're they're hard to get. They are hard to retain. Because uh, obviously, as as union carpenters, whether you're a commercial diver, a general carpenter, an EIS specialist, a Millwright, scaffold director, or, or pile driver, uh, we uh, do demand a, a higher um, wage of living. Okay through collective bargaining, we've already negotiated that with our union contractors. And so we, uh, right off the bat, have a livable wage as a a Mm -hmm. union member. We also earn benefits, medical, dental, and vision benefits for our, not only for the member, for for, for their families as well. Uh, Add to that a pension package that Know, we are, are um, contrib- being contributed to uh, access to training, which keeps us definitely on the cutting edge of, of technology and, and advances in construction. We have representation. Uh, through union representation that look out for our best interest on the job. And then we also have safer working conditions. So all of those things, got all, all of that comes at a, at a premium and no one is digging into their pockets. A customer, when given the opportunity between paying a, a higher premium for a union contractor or a non-union contractor, mm-hmm. is digging in their pockets to, to give money to the union contractors because we're better looking you know, because we, (laughs) we, we roll up in nicer rigs. No, we are better (laughs) value for those customers. And that is the bottom line where, you know, there's people out there that, that would just eat our lunch on a day-to-day basis. If we did not provide better value and and a a bottom line, we get work done on time. We uh, get it under budget. we get it with fewer callbacks. We do quality work with less accidents. And that's, that's the beauty of having training and someone who can enforce regulations. And that's basically what a union does. You know, our our carpenters union, I like to say, has is, is been around 140 years, not, not in the business of carpentry, but really in the business of bettering its members' lives. Carpentry is a byproduct. Everything that we do is a byproduct of us being able to focus on our job and having the skills to, to get it done. And that is one of the bigger things and not to speak disparagingly spiritually about folks who are maybe listening and not in a union, but there are a lot of benefits and, and a lot of people have them uh, to being in a union. And a lot of people have a misconception that unions are, you know, all they want is my money. Oh, they just want my union dues. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, unions in and of th- themselves are a for-profit business. You need to have uh, income coming into to our organization to, to keep it viable. And I once heard someone say, you know, if you want to help a few people out, start a nonprofit, you want to help mm. a bunch of people out, start a for profit. And that's sort of the structure of the union. It takes money to to, to hold the organization together, to be able to uh, to work with politicians, to pass laws that are favorable, not just for union contractors, but for non-union contractors. And those are prevailed wage laws, both on the state and the federal level. So uh, unions kind of run deep in their, um, in their uh, expectation that the people that work for them are going to be motivated to get the job done and and you work with pride and professionalism and i think that's kind of where where i'd like to go with with the next question i hope hope yeah
0: yeah well for sure so talk about um getting involved in a union in terms of a career because i really i'm i'm past the point in my life where i'm thinking about my career in terms of like what am i going to do it's like i'm turning 40 in a couple months and so that ship is sailed. But I think often about when I was younger, thinking about that and and how many options there are that I did not know about at all. Um, for example, these uh, apprenticeship programs. Like we have a community college not far from here that offers some apprenticeship programs, and I I've, I did a semester at that community college. But I took like an English class and a German class and a music theory class. I didn't know there was an electrician's apprenticeship program class happening like one building over and i didn't know that electricians like come out of the gate making i don't know what back then but i'm sure it was way more than i was (laughs) expecting i didn't know that and so anyways um unions have a do they have a separate type of apprenticeship route or is it is it the same uh thing, just taught by different teachers. Talk about from- We, we absolutely do
1: have an, an apprenticeship um, a structure, a structure to our apprenticeships. But I'd like to, before I address that, I actually go into that, that uh, more of a systemic issue with with uh, kids in high school you know, not being given uh, a viable pathway of the trades as an option when they're gearing to graduate. Everyone uh, for, for decades now has been pushed towards college. College is the only way to financial security and professional success in America. And it's become pretty glaringly obvious that that is a, a, a fallacy. That you know, people that that find themselves in a hundred thousand, dollars hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred thousand dollar debt can actually literally walk out of a, a four-year program at the University of Washington or University of Oregon or Oregon State or Harvard or wherever you're going to college and actually find you're holding a piece of paper that was rendered obsolete the you know the week before because of mm-hmm. advances in technology, or worse yet, had been shipped offshore because someone found it was easier to get people that could get the work done, but didn't need that fancy degree to have it done. The right. the and and that's unfortunate. And I and I've been in contact with a lot of uh, career counselors lately, who are beginning to see that they're not quite setting their their um, their charges up for success. That the people that they are supposed to be helping find a future, by directing them solely to colleges is, is is not doing them any any justice. And so it's become, again, really apparent that the blue-collar trades, the building trades, are offering viable pathways to middle-class um, lifestyle in America and jobs with dignity, their first-choice careers. So our organization, the Pacific Northwest Carpenters Institute, is one of these regional training centers for the UBC that will take people that are green as new mode grass and show them what end of the hammer to hold, kind of like what your dad does, Scott does, show them how to mark on a board from very basic entry folks. And then after four years of a tuition-free construction college, give them a skill set that can't, again, be rendered obsolete overnight or outsourced. The work that's being done here in the US and Canada is being done by workers that you know uh have the skills to do so. And so I'm really really fortunate to have have exited my chosen career as a commercial diver to find an opportunity at PNCI and now I am the coordinator for the uh millwrights pile drivers and our carpenters and EIS specialist in Central Oregon like the Bend Prineville uh, Redmond area.
0: Did you say um tuition free? And it is tuition free,
1: sir. Absolutely. So you have to apply to the program and we have a vetting process. It starts by filling out an application on PNCI.org. Uh, once your application is submitted and you uh, are then invited to what we call a pre-hire, it's a, uh, a way to find out more about the organization, the structure of the unions, the structure of the apprenticeship, the expectations of our union contractors. You mm-hmm. go through that online, uh, pre-hire. The next step is an interview and you're actually interviewed by, by, uh, Two sides of the table, the union contractor side and the union side, and people that have worked in your particular trade. So, if you're interested in being a a pile driver, for, uh, for instance, uh, the folks that are going to be asking you the questions are from that that field. And they're going to try to get a sense of what your driving purpose is. Is pile driving, is this going to be an opportunity for you to better your life uh, and, and, and give you a career that you are truly interested in? Or is this something you're just kind of Trying to, to stick your foot in the pool, you know, and, and test the water and see if that's all right. The reality is, our members this are member supported apprenticeship programs, and so we're really selective because we want to make sure that that um, our members' money is being uh, utilized well. And we, no one wants to see someone get in and, and spend a year or two and decide that this wasn't for them. So we're we're selective on the okay. front end. The work eventually will weed out you know, the, uh, uh, the folks that truly didn't want to be there. And it's a difficult, as you know, uh, Nate, you know, construction is a difficult industry, but if you can get that application in that pre-hire done, that interview done and get yourself onto a union job through a dispatch, then you begin your apprenticeship. And it is a, uh, four year long tuition free construction college. The only thing that you're on the hook for at the end of four years is about a little under $300 worth of books and materials. Everything else wow. is is taken care of. It's it's the best kept secret in the building trades. The union. Yeah, I have this like
0: skeptical. Like it doesn't make sense. So because it obviously costs a lot of money to um, educate and hire twenty thousand dollars. The, the facilities. It's exactly like I I understand why college is expensive. You know, because it costs a lot of money to run a college and all of the things, all of the, everything that goes with it. And this is a little different, but a lot of those same costs. Exist so in other words, someone can leave a, their four-year apprenticeship program and owe three hundred dollars and and have a a
1: career
0: a, a career like a certification or journeyman level or whatever the Absolutely. I, maybe a level before journeyman but they're, they they're qualified to apply to, for a position. Somewhere. Yeah.
1: As you, you'll, you'll have a journey level card and you have the skills again, you know, you, your learning doesn't stop once you yeah. exit uh, our, our training program. Now you have the next 15, 20, 25 years of your life to, to continue to refine your craft, yeah. but it, it is, it does sound too good to be true, but every hour that a union member works here in the Pacific Northwest, $1 and seven cents of that goes to funding our education programs, either for the, for the apprentices or for the journey level workers. So if a a member works 2000 hours a year, there's $2,000 going into a slush fund that we use to fund these apprenticeship programs and the continuing education programs that are both our apprentices Mm -hmm. and journey level workers can take advantage of to keep themselves competitive so that we can offer more opportunities for our, our contractors.
0: How often are people applying who are like, let's say like a little deeper in their career, they're maybe not right out of high school, but maybe they're in their thirties or forties. Are people kind of using this as a new start for a a total, we we get a lot of emails from people who are not satisfied with like a, a job they have. And they, you mentioned romanticizing underwater welding. Well, we see that and get emails with people romanticizing every aspect of construction. Like, I just want to be swinging a hammer, you know, in the sun and it does like sound nice. And maybe there's moments that are very nice, there's also a lot of moments that are a lot of it's it's tough
1: and grueling and yeah, yeah it's uh Um, but it's, it's, it's deeply satisfying when you have those step back moments, when you and a crew have finished a project and you can step back and put your hands on your hips and, and realize that you have just built something that is going to be there for generations. I call it generational wealth, you know, that bridge, that school, that courthouse, that stadium, that is generational wealth. And that is something that, you know, in decades from now, your, your kids or your grandkids will be able to point at and say, yeah, granddad built that courthouse, you know, and it's something that, uh, so many of the the, um, uh, the, the college degrees are not preparing people for it. a lot of that is uh, you push a button and, and your work goes away and maybe it, maybe someone sees it, maybe someone just brown files it and you never know. Yeah. So it it is, it is interesting this, this turn because there is a definite skills gap growing in a, a skills gap growing in America and Canada where there's just not enough people to do yeah. that hard work. And so many people are, are convinced that, you know, oh, carpentry or the building trades are for folks that couldn't cut it in college. Well, no, not everyone is designed to, for, for higher education to that, that level, that, uh, that college degree. People that like to not only work with their hands, but work with their head are the ones that are out there building the, uh, you know, the infrastructure of America. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, we need to start bridging that skills gap. And one of the ways that we're really working on it here at, uh, in our organization, the UBC, is through development of leadership uh, leaders and, and through communication development and making sure that we have people that not only can do the work, but can inspire other people to do their best on the job. And that has been one of the, the major cultural shifts in construction industry. I mean, decades ago, and I'm sure your dad knows about it, you know, safety was, was sort of an afterthought, you know, production, get her done first and, and we'll worry about safety. You know, last. Uh, that's changed. Obviously, we're a very litigious society and people like to sue the heck out of each other. So it, it made good sense to try to cut down on the, the amount of accidents and injuries on the job. And so safety has become one of those major cultural shifts in, in the building trades. Drugs and alcohol uh, mm-hmm. zero tolerance now. And so many contractors again are really enforcing that, which is fantastic because you don't mm-hmm. want to be working at, you know, at heights or underwater or moving heavy steel or, or, yeah. uh, wiring up anything and have somebody who's, who's not, uh you know, full, fully cognizant next year. And then this last uh, cultural shift really has been about uh, leadership development and communication training and making sure that, you know, we have the ability to respect each other on the job, that we encourage each other to do their best and to uh, to, to, to really meet our customers' needs through that uh, level of professionalism that seems so to be lacking. Does that mean like in
0: addition to teaching the trade skills, they come out having classes and time learning these leadership principles and how to communicate better is that is that what you mean by uh absolutely or or is it a separate type of uh person you're training to communicate and teach these no
1: we're uh, you know i like to start because again uh having transitioned out of the field uh, into my coordinator position and an instructor at the uh pnci i work a lot with the uh First and second term, people that are just coming straight in, don't have a whole lot of experience. And I start yeah. planting those seeds of leadership and communication from day one, because mm-hmm. over the next four years, as they work their way through our program, it's going to be reinforced and their amount of responsibility is going to be increased and they need to be able to lead crews. So I think it's it's super important to start that from the very get-go and not wait until someone has exited our program and not wait till they're recognized as someone who can get the work done. And then all of a sudden it's like, Hey man, that guy really can frame up, you know, uh, get that, get that framing done or, or, uh, lay down those weld beads or whatever. You'd make a great foreman. And now they're stuck. You know, they're, they're a craftsperson who's now been thrust into this management position without any, uh, oh. education and, and, um, yeah. focus on leadership and communication. So it's there's no better time than the very first day of the very first class of a four-year-long uh, huh. construction college. And that's my my approach and a lot of the folks that uh, within our organization. That is what we pride ourselves on now, the UBC, is developing leaders in the
0: organization. Yeah, that's really program. cool. There's so many jobs that you take, and I've had a lot where you kind of get there and you're told like, okay, this is what you do. Do this thing. And and you might do it for whatever, a month or years without knowing what comes after that or what you could evolve into by mastering that you you know almost like you have like blinders on like this is what I do so and I actually think about high school and you know education that way where we are educating kids on lots of things but some of the basics like financial uh, decision making and how insurance works which I kind of never got mentioned in those situations it kind of reminds me of that like these skills are important but without these other, all other important skills, um, you can, I don't know, put yourself in a box a little bit. And from minute one for, for, for a kid or a new hire thinking like, okay, this is what you're going to do. And, you know, after a few years, you might be operating that machine or driving that equipment, or I don't know, something else that, that I could see that being very inspiring for someone who has like a more mundane part of the job at the moment to understand like, oh, I can see a bigger picture than just task at hand.
1: Absolutely right. And like you said, just just a few minutes ago, uh, in regards to opportunity, our average apprentice that comes into PNCI is 27 years old. So we're not getting kids right out of high school. We get very few kids right out of high school because it's a different generation. And again, the the system hasn't really directed them towards the, the trades. So we get people that may have gone to college maybe liked it maybe didn't you know and and or went out and did some other type of work experiences and then one way or another found out about the the union apprenticeships and so 27 years old is our average apprentice and it's uh it's great to see the transformation in people uh, I see both ends of the spectrum where I work at at PNCI because, again, I work a lot with the first and second term, people that are coming straight in, mm-hmm. don't know much about the trades. And then I also teach OSHA and CPR First Aid, which is one of the very last classes they get at at PNCI. And the transformation between uh, a first-termer and an eighth-termer is remarkable. Someone that is getting ready to journey out. The amount of self-confidence, the amount of skills, how they hold themselves, how they communicate uh, is, is just really, really... Um, uh, impressive and it, it makes me really proud to be part of an organization that can provide opportunity for someone uh, in the trades and treat it like a profession and not something that, yeah, I couldn't do, figure out anything else to do in life. No, this is a first choice career. And a career that again is going to provide for you and your family for for decades to come. If you take care of yourself and you you uh, put in the hard work, man, I've I've profited greatly from it. And again, I stumbled into it. I did not know what I was getting into, but I am so thankful that I have because at now at age fifty seven, you know, I'm just uh, very close to re- being able to retire if I wanted to, which is phenomenal with a really solid retirement. So, yeah, I, I can't really, say yeah, enough wow. about uh, the unions. And, um, and, and the building trades and the importance of development, uh, of leaders. And that's why I started the grit nation podcast, which I'm hoping we're going to be able to get into here in a little bit, about a year and a half ago, I did start my own podcast to address, a lot of the things that we've been talking about to, to shine a positive light on what it means to be someone working in the blue collar trades in, in North America and the opportunities that are available to us. And my podcast, I much like yours, I, I interview people, industry experts, people that are uh, have a lot to say about um, what it means to to um, hold a job with dignity in the in the building trades. And I'm, I'm you've had a especially. lot of
0: really interesting guests on there and of a nice variety of um ex- just different types of experts with different um views on these things Is, has that been i'm assuming it's been interesting what kind of things have you learned and in what ways has hosting this podcast and having these conversations changed how you have even thought about you know maybe your own career and your own uh, things you already thought you knew a lot about
1: yeah, it, it's amazing to me. The more I learn, the more I recognize I, how little I thought I knew, or you know how little I really knew. Uh, every time I, I meet someone that adds a little bit more depth to what labor history is and the struggles that it it uh, it took to get uh, things that we take for granted nowadays, the weekend. Two days off, Saturday and Sunday, forty-eight hours back to back, is a fairly new construct in the in the uh, the the larger arc of of mankind. I mean, it's only been really a hundred, just over a hundred years that the weekends have been here. Yet we grew up with weekends. Our folks grew up with weekends. Their grandparents may or may not knew what a weekend was, and their, their great grandparents definitely didn't know what it, what they were. So you know, understanding the uh, the, the role that when um uh. When organized labor bands together to to fight for things like time off, safer working conditions, it's it's huge. I've learned a lot about uh, again communication. I talk with a lot of people that are uh, leaders in the industry, like Ken Rusk. Who wrote a book called Blue Collar Cash? And again, Ken's uh, uh, recently been on with Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs on a, a video that is uh, addressing that skills gap that we talked about earlier. So, having the opportunity to talk with someone like Ken Rusk was amazing. Uh, I interviewed a, a motivational uh, lifestyle coach, if you will, named Brian Bogart on the show. And Brian Bogart, uh, at the age of seven, literally had his left arm ripped off his body in a parking lot of Walmart in Arizona by a pickup truck. And, and fortunately for him was able to have it reattached and listening to Brian's story and how he did not allow that adversity to, to, permanently staying the rest of his life and the inspiration that he and the strength that he drew from that that er, injury early on in his life is, is truly inspirational. And it, it just talks about the tenacity, determination, the grit that is needed to to get through day-to-day work. And, and if you're in the construction industry to get through your day-to-day on the job.
0: I listened to that interview and I've been thinking about it nonstop because I have kids. And it's funny how when you listen to a conversation like that, and he didn't Dwell on the accident for very long. He had a lot of other um, important things to talk about. But isn't it funny how you can hear just something that somebody might say or something they even heard that really just sticks? And like I said, I I've always been aware of safety with kids in parking lots, but I'm telling you, I think about it differently after listening to that and thinking, "Wow!" And and he wasn't even being like you know reckless running around. He was kind of just standing there, just being a kid. Yeah, yeah. isn't that (laughs) wild? yeah, yeah just it's, hearing it's, these things and being able to like absorb these stories of that are you know happening, I I would have never known had you not um, taken the time to put that together. It's pretty cool. Well,
1: well but, thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's been a labor of love. You know, when I first started the uh, the podcast a year and a half ago, I knew I liked to listen to podcasts. I wanted to 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 be able to reach a larger audience. I didn't quite have an understanding of of how well received the show would be. So when it first started, it was grit. Uh, Northwest, a carpenters union podcast, and I thought, well, you know, just my students and some some local folks. But you know, when you put things out on the worldwide web and through word of mouth, the show began to grow and grow and grow. And uh, and and so I f- figured, you know, let's rebrand it to Grit Nation, the building trades podcast, and let's make it more accessible to to folks. And it's not it's not heavy unionism at all. It's about just shining a positive light on the on people that choose to do the hard work of building uh, again yeah. the infrastructure of America. And then I I, I approach. Uh, the, the subjects by what interests me. I've listened to a lot of other podcasts that deal with uh, with labor specific inju- issues, and they really seem to get deep in the weeds pretty fast. and And that I'm sure they have an audience for that, but I like a, a more well rounded variety and and meeting people on different discussions of uh, of. Um, you know what it what it means to be a craftsperson in in the US kind of like your show here it's just you, you know it's interesting it's informative and like you say you don't you don't have to be hit over the head hard to get the message you can pick out what you want out of it and it sounds like you and and uh, an attention to kids in parking lots <laughs> seem to resonate <laughs> so i'm happy if i can reach out and 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 affect a few people's lives for the better i'm i'm i feel like i'm doing a good job and i'll yeah, continue not to mention just life.
0: giving people a chance to get something from the horse's mouth. Like I got, you know, I learned a lot about unions from listening to your show and I, I came, I just really only know and have known what you hear from others. And there's just so much. Um, I don't know. Everybody has like their own experience that give them the reasons why they might have a strong opinion about things, which is perfectly fair, but it's pretty cool to have a conversation or even just listen to a conversation with someone who might've had a, quite different experience with a, could be a, a union in that topic, but even just trades in general and, and careers like, uh, you know, that, that is quite different than something I could have, could have come across uh, on my own. And I said, hearing about unions in this way is pretty I, my only other experience firsthand with unions was a, a, my buddy had a next door neighbor who was a union boss. I don't know if that's, and I know it's not a technical Career. That's all I knew. That sounds like the mafia there. I know. That's what I thought too. It's like, oh, this—he—he he was a really skilled woodworker. He was in his garage, just like building stuff, and he's retired. And my buddy just, yeah, he was a union boss for a long time and a really cool guy. And I, literally, all I knew was like, oh, I asked him once or twice, like, what's that? What was that like? He was from back east, and he—he he had some interesting um, stories. But, anyways, I really appreciate that you're putting this stuff out there and bringing awareness that what you shared about that tuition program um at your school there of giving people this this training and this apprenticeship program for basically nothing obviously they have to apply and kind of um earn the right to be there but wow talk about um Talk about a life-changing podcast for somebody who might listen. If not this one, maybe right. something else you're doing where they might go down that route and really help them out. So keep it
1: yeah, up. I, I sure hope so. Again, you know whether it's going to be in carpentry with the UBC or the uh, the Steelworkers Union, the Electrical Workers Union, the uh, Plumbers Union, the Laborers all have great uh, programs. I'm particularly uh, proud of the UBC, and again, towards our uh, uh, emphasis and not just getting people who can do the work, but lead the work. And if yeah. you're interested going to car- carpenters.org. Carpenters with an S dot org will get you to the UBC's website, or you can visit pnci.org, or you can give me a call and I'd be happy to talk with you.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Well, for our listeners, this is coming in a few months, but my dad's going to be on your show. And I, I think he was a member of the Carpenters Union for a period of time. I don't know exactly. I was a little kid, but when we lived in Las Vegas, I believe for a few years, he was a, um, uh, a yeah. member of the union. I, I don't know. You'll have to ask him about it. So if our right. listeners are curious to hear some of that uh, about my dad and his interaction um, there as well as wherever else you take that conversation, that's coming in a few months. Once that post, we will link to it in the oh, show notes here yeah. so people can, uh, if they enjoy hearing this, they can kind of move to that conversation. And uh, Joe, thanks so much for taking the time and keep up the good work. I just love how you're inspiring training and, and, uh, and moving the trades forward. There's a lot of different uh, ways that that's done and certainly um the way you're involved is is a critical one
1: all right well thank you so much for uh, having me on your show nate this has been a lot of fun
0: all right we'll do it again soon thanks again
1: all right take care well that wraps up this episode of grit nation the building trades podcast for more information about the essential Craftsman or how you can begin a career in the trades be sure to check out the show notes for this episode or visit the grit nation podcast at www.gritnationpodcast.com That's gritnationpodcast.com. While you're there, be sure to check out the prizes and promos page where you can enter to win great Grit Nation merchandise. Till next time, this is Joe Cadwell reminding you to work safe, work smart, and stay union strong.